If you guys love the podcast, you want to get the audible version of my new book, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital, at capitalistbook.com. A user named just Jay on Amazon said this in a review, a four-hour work week for 2019. He goes on to say, I bought this book because I read somewhere that it was like a four-hour work week of 2019, and it absolutely delivered. The book delivered on both big ideas and has specific actionable templates, including unredacted and minimally redacted emails. This book is not chock full of self-promotion or useless platitudes, but is broken down into four key rules explained in solid detail and with specific and often amusing anecdotes. Reading this really got my wheels and my head turning of how to be resourceful, which many say is the ultimate trait of a successful entrepreneur. My favorite of the four rules is blank. You have to go read the review to find out. But guys, thanks for supporting me on the podcast. I hope you go grab the book on Audible today at capitalistbook.com. He launched his company Moat back, call it 2010, really to help make sure what advertisers were paying for is exactly what uh, they were getting in the long run. Think of it almost like uh, just double checking internal systems at Google and Facebook and other kind of big ad platforms. Grew that to a healthy degree, said, you know, we're going to go after $100,000 ACV accounts. There are several hundred people that can pay that. They grew to over 500 folks paying that kind of account, that kind of money. So over 50 million bucks, call an ARR. Really one of the first, I would say, ad tech companies that was truly not fake, but a real SaaS company uh, really ushered in sounds like in 2012 with a Mayfield exercise since then sold to Oracle for reported 850 million dollars now building uh, and working at Oracle inside the data cloud with a much longer time horizon and time span that he's thinking about this is the top entrepreneurs podcast where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn each episode features revenue numbers customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Jonah Goodhart. He's a senior vice president of Oracle Data Cloud. He was the co-founder and CEO of Moat, which was acquired by Oracle in April of 2017. He was also the founding investor and board member of Right Media, which was acquired by Yahoo, founding partner of WGI Group and co-founder of Billions.org. Ernst & Young named him Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017, New York, in the category of digital media. He's also a member of Mayor Bloomberg's Council on Technology and Innovation. Jonah, are you ready to take us to the top? I'm ready. Thanks for having me, Nathan. You bet. So for people that maybe are not familiar with the ad tech space in general, kind of describe what Moat does for them. Yeah, so really simple. So Moat is a measurement and analytics platform. So when people buy advertising on the internet, we help those those companies figure out what happened. Did anybody see their ad? Was it a human being? Did anybody hopefully pay attention to it? And and ultimately, what impact did it lead to? So if you think about it as advertising as sort of the, the thing that funds the open and free internet most of us love and most of us uh, have loved for 20 some years. Advertising is this sort of critical piece that kind of holds it together. When I got started back in the late 90s, there was something like a billion dollars spent annual, annually on digital advertising. Today, that number is in the magnitude of 200 billion. So from a billion to 200 billion in 20 years, one of the fastest growing parts of the world of marketing and advertising, of course, is digital. Um, but the question I think that a lot of people have is, okay, 
that's great, but does it work? How do I measure whether or not an ad that I run on Facebook or Snap or Pinterest or with you on a podcast, how do I know whether that's effective, whether I'm reaching the right uh, people, whether they're paying attention and whether I'm driving a result, whether I'm driving an impact. So we've spent the last, I would say, seven or eight years at, at Mo prior to being acquired by Oracle, um, really asking questions about uh, how people pay attention and about uh, how we can maybe understand that attention and, and how ultimately we can help people figure out effectiveness of their stories. Because in the end of the day, I believe that advertising is simply storytelling. Um, and so that's what I've spent a lot of my I guess last seven or years uh, of my professional life focused on. So 2000 was founding, or sorry, 2010 was founding date for Moat? 2010 was founding date, yeah. So I had been, I had been in the world of, of marketing and advertising for many years before that, going back to the late 90s when I was in college uh, at Cornell. Um, started a company with my brother at the time, led to a couple other companies, led to angel investing uh, and a handful of other things. And then we really got started with Moat in, in 2010. Okay, 2010. Then you build it, you scale it. I, I believe you raised significant capital there, 60 or 70 million. Yeah, we raised uh, just under 70 million. So we had self-funded the first 3 million ourselves. So my brother, uh, Noah, myself, uh, and one other partner, Mike Walrath, uh, the three of us co-founded the company. Um, I was the CEO and we put in $3 million of our own money. And that lasted us uh, a little over a year, almost two years. Um, from 2010 to the end of 2011, we then took about a million five from uh, friends and family. So it was, uh, and we called our angel round. It was SV Angel, Lair Hippo, Founders Fund, but then a true lot equity of or a note. Uh, it was equity. Okay. Um, and we we had individual CEOs that uh, wrote checks. So Dan Rosenschwag is the CEO of Chegg. Uh, Greg Coleman. Uh, who's an advisor to BuzzFeed, was the former president of BuzzFeed, et cetera. A bunch of sort of interesting people that we were, we were uh, sort of uh, impressed by and, and thought were, were great leaders in the space, uh, decided that they would invest in us. And so we raised a million five in, in the end of 2011. And then 2012 was when we raised our first institutional round. And so we went out to uh, Mayfield, um, and Mayfield led what ended up being about a $13 million uh, what we called a series B, our numbers were, our lettering, I guess was sort of funny. So we had, we had pre-seed, uh, seed, you know, <laughs> it was weird. So we, well, we'd raised $3 million or put in $3 million of our own money. And then we raised a million five in, in friends and family and angel in, in 2011, it was sort of odd to have four and a half million dollars raised and to say, you're then going to raise an A and maybe now that would be normal. And the size of rounds have all come up since then. But at that point, it felt like, all right, we've sort of done our A because we've put almost $5 million into the company. So this is really a, a B was sort of how we felt about it. Um, and then we ended up just going out and sort of officially making that our Series B. But it was technically our first institutional round. Um, and again, that was led by Mayfield. Uh, SoftBank put in uh, a little bit of money as well, but it was predominantly Mayfield. And they joined our board at that point. And last round was what? The last round that we raised was uh, Insight Venture Partners. So that was in 2015, uh, Insight uh, put in $50 million. Um, and that was our Series C. And what was the valuation on that? Uh, so we didn't announce the, the valuation, but it was, it was, um, it was in, a, in, a, in a couple hundred million dollar, you know, plus, plus or minus range. Uh, it, was, it was healthy. It was, it was an interesting spot for the company because we didn't have to raise. And so we were in, we were profitable, which very few SaaS companies uh, turned out to be profitable. 
And so you, when we do you want to just be clear? Most people assume ad tech with like a transaction percent of spend model. You were a actual, not like a bullshit SaaS company. You were like a real SaaS company. It was real recurring revenue. Yeah. So let's talk about this. because I'm, <laughs> pas- I'm passionate about it. So first of all, when I talk to companies and I say, they say that they're SaaS, I say, okay, do you have 70, 80% gross margins? Can you predict what your revenue is going to be for the next year or two? Do you think of things in terms of churn and MRR and do you talk to me about COGS and talk to me about how you think through what goes into that number? And that's how you figure out oftentimes whether people are real SaaS or not. We certainly were uh, a real SaaS company. Um, we were actually one of the only companies in sort of focused on the world of advertising that actually priced in that way. So we priced based on an annual contract commitment. Um, we had recurring revenue deals. Did you and- have expansion levers to pull? I mean, what was net revenue retention? So we looked at it, uh, um, we, we didn't play the, the churn games that people play in terms of the net revenue attention. So I, I got very into SaaS and SaaS metrics um, over the last five or so years prior to being acquired. And one of the things that people do is they, they come up with this sort of funny thing where they say, well, well, we'll look at churn, but then we'll look at how much money was added on top of it. And the, the total will somehow be more than 100%. I never liked that way of looking at a business. I like the idea that, hundred percent of your customers staying with you is the top that you can have. And then what are you lower than that? Cause some people are going to cancel for a variety of reasons. And that was how we always looked but at Jonah, their- Why is that more? What, so I'm curious why you looked at the actual logo versus here's a story a CEO might tell me on a show, right? Nathan, we're transitioning to enterprise. We've churned some customers. We can't serve well anymore at lower ARPUs, but we've added people that are paying five, six times that. So of the cohort that signed up a year ago, 10% gross revenue churn, but 40% expansion. So net net, you're 130 on that cohort. You wouldn't not, like that. I wouldn't like that. Cause I think it, it makes it harder to understand what's fundamentally going on with the business. And so the, all that CEO reports in that case is we're net 130 or we're net 140. And what you don't understand is that a piece of the business is actually churning. Well, they know and the gross churn still. Changing. They still know. I mean, they know that 10% gross churn, but you're saying you just, you don't like that. You just want to do it per logo. I well, not just per logo, but, but I, I would do it based on, based on revenue and customers. And I would look at it as a, as a clean number. So what I tell entrepreneurs, in fact, I had a call with somebody today, literally take what the contracts are that are written for a particular quarter, go back a quarter or two, the contracts that you had written as of the start of that quarter, how much money were those specific customers going to generate for that quarter? And then how much money did they actually end up generating? That was your churn for the quarter, whatever you netted out from that group. And if you were to annualize it, times it by four, and you get a sense of what your annualized churn is. Separately, if you want to look at what did you add in bookings, what was new versus expansion, that's great. And I think you can you can look at all of those metrics as an important part of understanding a business. But I think people oftentimes confuse those things, and it makes it hard to, to make sense of a business. So getting back to your question was, were we a SaaS company? We absolutely were. And one of the first things that we did with Mayfield back in 2012 is we started thinking about our pricing model. And we said, all right, we're going to have to walk away from uh, certain deals. We're going to have to walk away from someone who says, hey, we will write a $50,000 or $100,000 check in order to do business with you, but it's going to be a one-time deal. And we said, no go, not, not interested. With margins Our, that are like 30% require a lot of human touch. Totally. We, we said, listen, in the end of the day, we think that we're creating ongoing value. And uh, one of the things that I think was, was an innovation, if you want to call it that, at least other people said it was an innovation, was that we did uh, always out, always on contracts that auto renewed, but we also let our customers essentially out at any time. Somebody wrote an article recently that said, you know, in the end of the day, 
you do kind of let your customers out when you're building a SaaS company at any time that they want to get out. Can you force them technically to stay in as some companies have done? You can, but then what happens? You get somebody that hates yeah. you, they talk negatively about you to others, sure. and they can't wait. They can't wait for your renewal date so that they can cancel and go to somebody else. We always said to our customers, look, if you want to be done with us, if you don't like the service, if you don't like the value, tell us, we'll, we'll stop, well, we won't charge you anymore. And the result of that was that we had to deliver every single month for our customers. The flip side is that we had auto-renewed contracts. And so our contracts, as long as customers were happy, just kept going. And so our renewal rates look unbelievable if you look at it through that lens, but it was because the renewal date itself wasn't that significant for I us. I don't know, yeah, so that's helpful. Walk me through the, the expansion strategy though. So which pricing axes did you use to drive up that first year ACV? Yeah, so basically we were really focused actually not on expansion in the beginning, but we were really focused for the first, I would say almost two years from 2012 to 2014 of just getting new logos, frankly. We, we didn't honestly focus on expansion. Uh, it was something we talked about in board meetings with Mayfield and our feeling was we wanna be a new logo machine. We want to be able to just generate new business, new business, new business, and really importantly, hold those companies with us. So low churn. So new logos and low churn were basically the only things we cared about with the belief that if we're providing value and they're not churning, over time, we'll be able to increase our, we'll be able to increase our deals. We'll be able to add more to the package. In terms of how we price things, we always looked at it as package pricing. So we said, look, here's all this cool stuff that we can do for you. Now, tell me what you want. And they would say, well, I don't really need this, but I definitely want that. And I definitely want that. And I definitely want that. How much is it? And we would say, okay, great. We'll come back to you and we'll give you a price for everything that you want. And we would basically package price that way. We didn't do, we didn't put a matrix on our site. We didn't do uh, transparent pricing. We said, look, we're going to put together each deal is different. Each client is different. Their needs are different. The support level they want is different. The number of users they're going to have is different. The volume that they're going to do through our system is different. The different sort of levers could end up being different. In the beginning, we didn't know all time. This is okay. We have a handful of levers, which you mentioned earlier. The number of users is one of them. Uh, the amount of volume that goes through our system is another. But I think we assume sometimes in the SaaS world that your levers should be X. It should be bandwidth. It should be volume impressions. It should be users. It should be seats, and it's not necessarily the case. You want to think about, in my mind, what are the things that are actually driving the business of your customers? And if they do well, what are the things they're going to use more of over time? And what are the things that are sort of logical to be able to price on? But honestly, we, we, we just thought if we can not lose customers and get lots of, we're going to have a good business. We'll figure out expansion. When it came time to expand, and thinking, all right, we roll new products instead of just rolling them and giving them to that's literally a net new product that didn't exist before. Why don't we go to clients and say, hey, we have this new product. Are you interested in it? There would be an additional cost to add this to your package. We can do a deal though, and we can include this with some of the other stuff you've been talking about, and we can get you on a model that includes some of the new stuff that you've been looking for. So we looked at it as how do we put together a bunch of different pieces package. We never looked at it. Somebody said, we sort of did uh, uh, Tesla pricing in a sense that you pay one price and you get the whole thing. You get the screen, you get the seats, you get, you don't say, all right, I'm going to pick apart every individual piece of it and decide how much additional I want to pay. You don't have sort of a base car concept. And we didn't either. We said, look at, we're a premium service. 
We're going to package this together for you. And if you want it, we'll work with you to make a price that works. And that is most of the stuff that you're looking for. And, and that focused then over time, we said, all right, let's add to it. And that ended up working out really what it did for us. We didn't know it at the time. What it did for us, though, is it got us to keep our business simple and focus on two things, which were adding new customers and not having customers churn. And honestly, by focusing on those two things, it ended up becoming the most important part of our of our business, which was stickiness and being able to have market fit. So, Jonah, before you sell to Oracle, what were you able to scale to over those seven or eight years in terms of total customers using the platform? Yeah, so we looked at it, I guess I'm trying to think of what our of our pre-Oracle, pre-acquisition day uh, customer count looked like. It was in the, it was certainly in the 500 plus um, customer range, um, five, six, 700, something in that, in that sort of order of magnitude. I don't remember exactly what it was. We hit, we hit a point in the curve though, where um, I think everything started sort of coming together where we, the press that you were seeing about the space, about the industry was happening at the same time as you were seeing press about us specifically happened at the same time as sort of the winds were moving in a, a particular direction. And so as people began to say in 2015, uh, hey, maybe the wall, quote unquote walled gardens should have measurement that's not themselves. Maybe we should have an independent company that's not selling the media that measures Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or any of these guys. As that started to happen behind the scenes, we're actually working on deals with many of those companies, it all kind of ended up working well. The press hit at the same time that that some of the business things that we had been working on came together, and I think that accelerated uh, our business quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So, just to really understand that point, you know, that point in time, you know, a little less than seventy million raised pre-acquisition. You know, ACV kind of average when you did this, you know, analysis with Mayfield back in twenty twelve. You said one hundred thousand bucks is kind of the right. Go, thing to go after. You were north of 500 customers, 500 times hundred grand ACV would put you north of 50 million bucks in ARR. Was that accurate? Yep. And then why? So a huge advantage, obviously, to this was what you just said. You were independent. So when Oracle came along and said, hey, we're going to all make you an offer, why did you decide to sell? So uh, I think there's a couple of reasons to think about selling your company. Um, num- number one, I think the thing that I thought about a lot was What's the impact of this, uh, good or bad, going to be for for our customers, for our shareholders, and really importantly to me, for our employees, for our team? These are people that you know spent five or five or six or seven years of their life, of if you will, their prime part of their working life, a good chunk of their prime part of their working life, committed to a vision that that myself and my brother and a few people had. Um, and they were working tremendously hard. And so one of the things that I think people don't always go through when they think about do I sell or not is what's the impact on others? So would it have been sort of great for shareholders? I think had we uh, sold, yes. And I think it was great for shareholders. Would it have been great? Could we have had more upside in the future? Perhaps. Um, but honestly, in the end of the day, I felt like, well, the team, there's a lot of people in this in this company um, that this is their either their first job or their second job and they're eight hour a day working on this. And the difference that this will make in their life is pretty phenomenal. And so uh, I, I remember going through this sort of matrix of what's the upside of selling? What's the downside of selling? What's the upside of not selling? What's the downside of not selling? And the only conclusion that I had come to that the downside of, of selling was that maybe we're leaving some some value on the table. Maybe we're leaving some money on the table. And I felt like, well, 
that's that's okay because in the end of the day, the upside is that a, a heck of a number, a heck of a lot of people are going to do really well by this, including our employees, our shareholders, and and others. And if the downside is only, well, we could have made quote unquote even more money, then that would it's a pretty silly way for me, I think, to look at the world. I felt like, all right, these guys are going to do great. Everyone's going to be really happy. Um, we should do it. The downside of, of, of course, not selling is that something could change. The market could change. The business could fundamentally change. It didn't, luckily, and and I think we would have been in a great spot. But you can never you can never tell the future. Go. I go back to my my time at at a company that I started called Colonize. I started it in 1998 with my brother. Our first full year of business of Colonize, totally different company. We did 15 million in revenue and 10 million in profit. Our second year of business, we did 30 million in revenue, 20 million in profit. Absolutely insane numbers that turned out were definitely too good to be true. We didn't know that though. We didn't know that 2000 and 2001 were about to change the world. We didn't know that the bubble, quote unquote, was going to burst. We didn't know that the companies that were spending money with us were going to go away. We didn't know that the economy was going to change. Obviously, we didn't know what was going to happen on the and the rest of what happened. And so I think my sort of takeaway from that was, wow, we had this crazy situation, which we could have looked at and said, hey, we should have kept running this company, colonized my first company forever, but we made a decision at the time not to sell. And I looked back on that and felt, wow, in hindsight, of course, it's 2020, but that looked pretty silly. Had we sold, the only thing we would have done is maybe left some upside on the table that's pretty good. Life is yep. life is too short to worry about so, that sort of thing. So, so Jonah, what, I feel like in the end of the day, when, when Oracle when Oracle came to you, you obviously do the deal. What was the sale price and the end price? So Oracle doesn't doesn't announce uh, what what the prices are that they do deals at for private companies. So there's been some some reports of what the range was, um, but but Oracle doesn't. Really to talk about the numbers specifically. Okay, I mean Recode, which is I mean pretty reliable folks. You know, said eight hundred and fifty million bucks. You're saying you you can't make a comment on that. I mean, I, unfortunately, Oracle doesn't talk about pricing, but it was it was reported um, by a couple of different by a couple of different outlets um, in a couple of different ranges. But yeah, unfortunately, I I work now at a public company and and have rules that I have to that I have to live by there. Yeah, let me let me ask it in a different way. New York tech scene is kind of up and coming. Kind of the bigger exits in this kind of space might have been like Buddy Media, etc. Fair to say that whatever the price of this exit was, it was meaningful for the New York tech scene. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think our, our team and uh, employees and investors, uh, I think everybody felt very good um, by, by what uh, this, this deal ended up being, but also not just because of the money. The money, of course, is, is great and, and that's uh, huge and, and everyone's happy about that. But by the, the company that we were going to get a chance to, to partner with, Oracle is a, a storied company that's been around 40 years, literally 40 years. We talk about Silicon Valley and we sort, we're sort of blasé about it, I think, sometimes. Oracle is one of the companies that, that helped sort of create Silicon Valley, that helped create um, what I think we're all sort of leveraging these days in terms of software and business models and figuring out how to scale companies. And I think for me, the chance to work with and at uh, and be a part of a company like Oracle was was exciting. I had never worked at a big company, and so uh, I was excited about taking on that as as a new opportunity for learning, as a new challenge. And it's been uh, tremendously rewarding from from my perspective. I'll tell you one thing that happened uh, post Oracle is that I lost seventy pounds, uh, and so I was in a place personally 
uh, running moat where I was working really hard and I was doing the classic rationalization where you kind of go, all right, it's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll figure this out later. And in the meantime, you order a pizza and you order room service and you don't necessarily make the best decisions. Um, I think for your, for your personal life, and I can tell you, at least for me, I wasn't making the best decisions personally in terms of the things I was choosing to eat and how I was treating my body. Um, post Oracle, you start to have a perspective that's a longer term horizon. You start to think about Oracle doesn't look at the world as what's going to happen just today or tomorrow. They think about, all right, where is this world going? Where are we going to the next one, two, three, four, five, ten, et cetera, years? And as you shift that that sort of horizon outlook from being quarterly, monthly, or weekly in a startup world to being something that's longer, uh, you take a different you take a different path. And I think I've I've learned a lot in this process. I've gotten to to certainly get in shape and get and get healthy, which has been awesome. Um, but I've also learned a lot about how do we make day to day decisions uh, when we're building companies and how we're thinking about the long term because there's nothing about some of of those decisions you make sometimes back to, to bite you. And so as I think about uh, decision-making in building a company, I think you want to sort of balance the, all right, I got to get it done immediately. I got to get it done tomorrow. We got to get this deal done with, are we building something that's sustainable, that has value over the long run? And I think that's been an awesome part about being a part of Oracle. Good. Jonah, let's wrap up here. We're out of time with the famous five. Quick one-word answers here if you can. Number one, favorite business book. Uh, favorite business book I would say is, uh, there's a, there's a Warren Buffett book, um, that I read years and years ago, uh, Warren Buffett way, I think it was called. Num- number two, Jonah, give me a CEO that you're following that might be under the radar or considered under the radar. Uh, Howard Lerman, the CEO of Yext. Uh, number three, what's your favorite online tool for building, uh, now the business inside of Oracle? Favorite online tool for building the business inside of Oracle? Yeah, just for business, but your personal favorite tool for building businesses. Uh, I love Slack. Number four, uh, how many hours of sleep are you getting every night? Uh, I get at least eight hours of sleep every night now post acquisition. And that pointed very strongly with me losing 70 pounds. <laughs> I believe it. What's your situation? Married, single kids? Uh, happily married uh, and four kids, eight and under. Wow. And how old are you? Uh, I just turned 40. 40. Very good. Last question. What do you wish your 20 year old self knew? Oh, last question. What would my, wish my 20 year old self knew? I wish my 20 year old self, um, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think, I think part of life is that, is that you go through experiences good or bad and you try to learn from as you, as you go, I guess, uh, if anything, I would say, I wish my 20 year old self knew, that you could you could slow down and, and take a breath and, and still uh, do well in the end of the day and still feel good about your progress. Um, you don't have to get everything done uh, instantaneously as, as maybe I once thought. Guys, you can slow down and still have fun. He launched his company Moat back, call it 2010, really to help make sure what advertisers were paying for is exactly what uh, they were getting in the long run. Think of it almost like uh, just double checking internal systems at Google and Facebook and other kind of big ad platforms. Grew that to a healthy degree, said, you know, we're going to go after $100,000 ACV accounts. There are several hundred people that can pay that. They grew to over 500 folks paying that kind of account, that kind of money. So over 50 million bucks, call an ARR. Really one of the first, I would say, ad tech companies that was true not fake, but a real SaaS company uh, really ushered in. Sounds like in 2012 with a Mayfield exercise. Since then, sold to Oracle for a reported $850 million, now building uh, and working at Oracle inside the data cloud with a much longer time horizon and time span that he's thinking about. Jonah, thank you for taking us to the top. 
Thanks for having me, Nathan.